Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Podcast Network. This is Monday, February 22nd, 2021, and we have a very special episode eight of season three for you today, and it is a panel podcast, uh, including Joe Asher, the CEO of William Hill, uh, the very famous and well-known sports book. We have Heather Schiraldi, who is a product manager at PointsBet, a very well-known up-and-coming Australian uh, sports betting company. And then we also have Dan Wallach, who is the preeminent sports betting and gaming attorney in the country. And uh, this is a part of a class that I co-teach with a dear friend and colleague of mine, uh, Deedon Brozino, who is the Chief Development Officer at the Rose Bowl Legacy Foundation. So hope that you enjoy this episode. It's about 53 minutes long and uh, looking forward to um, you guys enjoying this particular show. Thank you again. So uh, we'll do some quick introductions here. Uh, first, we have uh, Joe Asher, who is the CEO of William Hill. Um, if you guys are not familiar with William Hill, uh, obviously a very big um, uh, uh, sports betting company. I encourage you guys to, um, to uh, look up Joe and to uh, check out his profile. Then we have Dan Wallach, who is a sports betting attorney, probably uh, uh, the, the premier sports betting attorney in the country. Uh, and uh, the pleasure of calling a, a personal friend. And then we have um, Heather, uh, Heather Schiraldi, who is the uh, product marketing manager at PointsBet uh, and also an alum of uh, Cal State Long Beach. So uh, thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. As I mentioned, uh, Dan is calling in from overseas, so we appreciate him being here and, um, and his fantastic uh, Zoom backgrounds. So... Um, all right. So a quick little icebreaker. Let's start with you, uh, Heather. So um, sports betting has moved really from taboo to mainstream. Uh, what has changed and what is changing? Sure. Um, let me preface this by saying I am three weeks into working in sports betting. So <laughs> I will um, give you as much information as I can see uh, kind of in my transition going into sports betting, but I'm sure that Joe will have a lot more information than I will. Um, you know, I, I guess what I see, um, you know, moving away from the taboo aspect of it, I think COVID really helped with that. Um, you know, everyone is stuck at home. It just became a part of sports culture. Um, we see it. I mean, every day when we're, I'm watching um, any sports network, the pregame shows, we're talking about what odds for each team now. It's just uh, very mainstream. Um, you know, the other part of it is just legalization. I mean, I think we're about like 20 different states now where it's legal. Um, not necessarily um, all on web yet. Some are only in-person legal, but um, still just the fact that there's 20 states that have already legalized it just uh, makes it a lot more part of this uh, everyday sports culture, in my opinion. Well, that's great, Heather. And let's go to you, Dan. What do you, Same question to you. What's what sort of changed? Uh, you know, it used to be taboo to talk about sports betting, and now it seems to be a lot more mainstream in sports 
particularly with teams? What, what's changed and, and what is changing? Well, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the day when there was a law called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act that was on the books that prevented the states from legalizing sports betting. And, and it's truly you know, more than societal change. It's the use of the court system to affect or to alter uh, the legal status of the federal law, which opened the floodgates. Obviously, people could point to uh, daily fantasy sports rising popularity as sort of a gateway uh, to, to, to legalization. But none of this would be possible. If not for uh, you know Joe's you know you know efforts in New Jersey and the efforts of others in New Jersey like Dennis Drazen and, and, and Governor Christie and Senator Lesniak uh, to fight that fight for so many years because Heather Heather is not working for points bet today if New Jersey doesn't win that case uh, the landscape for sports betting remains confined to New Jersey so I mean it's a perfect example of how the you know of how the courts can be used to. Uh, force change that, you know, maybe the opponents aren't quite ready for. And as a result of that court decision, uh, the NBA and all the other major professional leagues and the NCAA have quickly uh, and, and not surprisingly pivoted, which calls into question their, their previous uh, objection to, to the notion of legalized sports betting. So it's all about the court decision. Everything else, everything that came afterwards flows directly from that. Well, thanks, Dan. And then uh, same question to you, Joe, you know, sort of what's changed in sports, uh, in sports betting and, 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 and what is changing? Well, look, I think, I think Dan uh, did a good job of kind of tying it to um, the uh, Supreme Court case. But, you know, there, there were other things that sort of led up to that that I think are, are relevant. I mean, you can go all the way back to, um, you know, when, when mm-hmm. if you look through the history of it, you had um, Supreme Court. Um, um, case that Dan laid out, but the law that they struck down was passed in the early 1990s um, at the behest of the professional sports leagues, and it was really early days of the internet, right? Then, you know, you fast forward, um, you know, 20 um, some years, and the, the, the law had outlived its usefulness, I think, and, and, and uh, the uh, and there was just a generational and societal change, right? You had Adam Silver take over as commissioner of the NBA and, and um, start um, spending some time on the sports betting issue and ultimately writing an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Uh, the American Gaming Association that historically had been um, designed to basically keep um, Washington out of the gambling industry had, and, and stop bad things from happening. Um, got behind sports betting as a, as a positive thing that they could try to get legalized. Um, and, and then, you know, up in the days before the, um, the Supreme Court argument, I remember there was uh, an op-ed piece in the Washington Post that George Will wrote uh, calling for the Supreme Court to overturn the law. And so there was sort of a, condi- a change in, in attitude um, that evolved over a number of years. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately what the Supreme Court did is it, it actually got the sports leagues out of the box that they had pinned themselves into because they'd been opposed to sports betting for so long um, that, that they, you know, really were had a, having a difficult time with the idea of just flipping on it and changing their position. Um, and the Supreme Court sort of wiped away the, the, the issue in, in many ways and, and let them out of the box that they had created. So it's a whole bunch of things you know, combined into one that I think really changed it. And now, 
you know, we're in the early innings of, of a, um, a significant shift in, in how Americans consume sports, right? It's becoming so um, um, integrated and will continue to be integrated uh, into, into professional sports because the leagues have embraced it. The teams view this as a great revenue source as well. The media companies in particular are big beneficiaries of this. You know, Heather's company's got to deal with NBC. We've got it with, uh, with CBS and, and through Caesars with ESPN. So, you know, there's the media companies have hopped on this um, as well. And, and I agree with Heather that COVID has really kind of, you know, accelerated it to some degree. Thanks, Joe. Um, so, Heather, let's go back to you. Uh, I know you've you've got three weeks in, uh, three long weeks in at Points Bet, but tell us a little bit about. Um, obviously, this is a graduate sport management class. You know, we've got sixty you know plus students in the class. Maybe talk a little bit about your journey getting into sports and sort of how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I started. I did my undergrad at LSU, and that's really where I got into sports. It's hard not to fall in love with in, with sports when you're at a big SEC school like that. Um, so I kind of fell into an internship there with the marketing and promotions department. That's where I, you know, thought it was the best thing ever. I, I was like, if I can do this for a full time job, I'm going to try to do it. So um, working on the field there at Tiger Stadium, I mean, it'll honestly change your life. So uh, decided to move back to California, which is where I'm from. Southern California, um, went to CSU Long Beach, obviously, to get my master's degree. Um, while I was there, worked under the great Deedon and um, worked in the athletics department as a marketing assistant and did that full time while going to school. Um, when the program was kind of wrapping up, decided to look for a full time job. Um, I was really looking for assistant director of marketing jobs, um, still in college athletics, because that's that's all I knew. And, uh, that is what I loved. So, um, found a job in Denver. People told me I'd like the city and, uh, took a chance. I'd never been here, decided to apply, got that job at university of Denver, and then, um, was then promoted to director of marketing and fan experience. So I was at university of Denver for about six years. Um, you know, when COVID hit, it kind of, it changed everything especially in college athletics, um, you know, people who work in it, it's a tough time right now. Um, you know, we're lo they're losing a lot of resources. Um, there's a lot of layoffs, lots of furloughs. It, it's, it's, it's tough. So um, I had been following sports betting and how fast it was growing, was very interested in it. Um, I saw specifically in Denver, points bet was moving here, their headquarters. So um, they began a, a partnership with uh, CU Boulder, which I thought was super interesting because I had never, never expected a college to actually partner with a sports betting company. I thought that was kind of crazy. And there had to be some compliance rules that, you know, shouldn't let that happen. Um, but apparently there aren't. So followed that partnership for a little while and um, saw the opening and just kind of took a chance and then yeah, so now I'm with points bet, got into sports betting. Oh, thanks, Heather. And then Dan, same question to you. I mean, how did you go for, you know, you're, I mean, I, I, I don't exaggerate here to the class that uh, Dan is truly the preeminent sports betting attorney. When people ask who does sports betting law or who, who knows about it, you, you know, you call Dan. Um, he also has a great podcast with a, a colleague named Dan Lust. 
uh, that that's pretty good. I think it's called contract conduct detrimental, right, Dan? Yeah. 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 Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're recording a little later today. So uh, I've been having some fun with that. It's a, it's a labor of love. You know how much work goes into doing those things. So um, I'm trying my best to, to, to keep those on a regular basis. Um, so your question again. So, so, how, so, so, uh, okay. Yeah. So like the same, same question. Uh, how did you get your start in sports and, and specifically into sports betting? Well, I was I was a partner at a at a Florida law firm, a pretty sizable firm. Had nothing to do with sports or sports wagering. And I think for the first 15, 20 years of my career, I was a commercial litigator and, a, and an appellate attorney. And I handled a I was assigned a horse racing case in two thousand and twelve, involving a dispute between um, two different racetracks over simulcast uh, rights and the distribution of the simulcast signal. I fell in love with the case. It just lit a fire. And I won summary judgment on behalf of, uh, I think Joe knows the track very well, Isle uh, um, Pompano Park. At the time, it was known as the Pompano Park Racetrack. I secured summary judgment for the track against Gulfstream Park, which was withholding its simulcast signal. So long story short, the case excited me. I won the case. And I said, I'd like, to, I'd like to spend a little bit more time around gaming. It was as close to sports law as I had ever gotten in my 20-year career. So I began a blog, um, a, a law firm blog, you know, that was focused on gambling law. And I obsessed, uh, in the early days, I obsessed over the uh, New Jersey sports litigation and the New Jersey sports betting case. I wrote about it incessantly, uh, so much so that I think I began to attract some attention and I started to get quoted on it. Uh, so... It, you know, my, my foray into the industry started basically through my, pra my, my practice, uh, you know, leading me into a gaming case, which led me into a gaming blog, which in turn led to a lot of writing about the subject. And, you know, five years later, you know, you're calling me a sports betting attorney. So it's a really good example of how, regardless of where you are in the trajectory of your career, uh, there's always room and time, as long as you put in the effort and are committed to it to kind of reinvent yourself. So I went from a appellate attorney, very you know good appellate attorney to now completely focusing on gaming law. And thankfully I have not written an appellate brief in over three, in over two years. And instead I'm writing, you know, memos and opinions that focus on gaming issues and you don't have, or, or sports wagering issues and you don't have to force me to do it. It's not a billable hour. It's not, it's, it's just something that I have a lot of joy and passion do, for doing. And I've approached my life, professional life, in a completely different manner, uh, knowing that I'm doing something that I love. But it, 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 it all stems back to using my, my background and skills as a lawyer to find a way into the industry and then to be passionate in writing about it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, you know, it's funny. There's this great um, uh, quote in the book, Tools of Titans, by uh, Tim Ferriss, where he talks about, you know, sort of working on the creative aspect of it and getting good at that. And then the money will come, you know, so it's, so I, I love how you've just focused on the creative and, and doing something you love. That was ever by design. It was just sort of, you know, somewhat accidental and in luck, but certainly the, the, the passion and commitment that I had towards the subject, I think bore fruit, even though that was never part of the plan. But if you're passionate about something, um, you know, that, that would certainly goes a long way. Sorry for interrupting. It's okay. No, thanks, Dan. All right. So, so Joe, same question to you. Uh, you always, you, you weren't always the CEO of William Hill. So uh, what was your, what was your process uh, 
getting into sports and 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 sort of uh, landing with uh, with William Hill? Yeah, so I mean, it's a story that covers many years. You really got to go back to my childhood. Uh, my dad was a gambler, and he loved to bet on on everything. Uh, he had a newsstand in in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, and he used to bet on sports, go to the racetrack, um, uh, play cards, and so I just grew up immersed in gambling. And I was a little statistics geek, and so I'd like to, you know, clip out the box scores out of the paper and try to tell them who to bet on. And um, I started working at the racetrack as a uh, as a teenager. Uh, in fact, I, in Delaware, I remember going to Pompano Park for the first time. I think I was you know, 18 years old or so, uh, but started working in Delaware when I was 16. Anyway, uh, wound up paying my way through school, um, working, uh, working at the racetrack, uh, and then decided to go to law school and um, uh, wound up practicing law for a number of years for a um, big um, New York City-based law firm. And just didn't have the passion for it. Didn't, you know, just wasn't my thing. You know, I wasn't one of these guys who came home and read the latest Supreme Court opinion. I'd much rather, you know, come home and, and you know, read the racing form or something about sports or what have you. So um, sort of trying to figure out a way to get back into the gaming industry. Wound up going to work for a client of mine uh, in New York with the job of trying to get them into the gaming business in, in the U.S. They had started to dabble on it a little bit in uh, uh in England. And that ultimately is what led to me moving to Las Vegas. Uh, this is 2006. And when I got out of here, not long afterwards, I had a falling out with them and, and uh, left. Uh, and then um, just sort of decided to get into the sports betting business. You know, I'd seen um, sports books in Las Vegas. And um, there were a couple of companies at the time that would run sports books for casinos that didn't want to do it themselves. At the time, they were typically smaller casinos. Um, and I just thought, you know, there was room in the market for an, another entrant uh, and that, you know, we'd do it a little bit better and, you know, more professionally run. And, um, uh, and so wound up starting a company, uh, started working on it in 2007. We opened for business in 2008. Fast forward to 2011, William Hill, which is a big British company, decided they wanted to um, uh, come into the U.S. market and they wound up buying um, my business and, and the other two competitors of mine at the time. Uh, and that became the William Hill U.S. business. Deal closed in 2012. And, um, you know, I didn't really know if I was going to stay or go, um, but I figured, you know, I'd give it a shot and kind of see how it went. And, and, you know, I at the time refused to sign an employment agreement and just told the CEO of the, uh, of the parent company, look, I'll stay for a respectful period of time, you know, kind of whatever that means. And, and I'll, after that, you know, we'll see how it goes. And, and if you like me and I like you, I'll stay. And if not, that's okay too. Um, and so anyway, here we are, uh, you know, eight plus years later. That's so awesome. circuitous route, but um, you know, if you told people who knew me as a little kid that Joe Asher would wind up as a bookmaker in Las Vegas, you know, I don't think too many people would have been surprised. Just, you know, it was sort of a circuitous route to get there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, so Jill, let's stick with you real quick. What kind of work are you doing? I mean, obviously CEO, it's, it's, a, it's a big title. It's a big company. Um, you've obviously worked really hard to get there. Well, what kind of work are you doing at, uh, as the CEO for William Hill? 
Well, I mean, it spans the gamut, right? You have responsibility uh, for every facet of the business. Um, and, and, you know, it's the cliche, but no two days are alike. And, you know, there's various things that come up, but, you know, obviously looking to grow the business, um, you know, you have relationships with business partners, um, obviously a, a massive focus around technology um, in our industry and in our business. Um, so there, there are, you know, many different pieces to it. Uh, you know, one of the more fun pieces is sort of the bookmaking side of the business or uh, the trading um, part of the business, as it's sometimes called, you know, really enjoy dealing with that. There's invariably HR type issues. Of course, there's tons of legal issues that come up all the time. So there's, um, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of aspects to it and, um, you know, it's a fun business. No, absolutely. Especially with sports and, and a lot of teams getting into sponsorships with, uh, some of these sports betting companies, it seems like a whole new, uh, frontier. So Heather, same question to you. What, what type of stuff are you doing, um, uh, at points bet? And this is obviously a big company as well. Uh, very well known in the sports betting world and making a lot of a lot of good moves there. Can you tell us a little about some of the work that you're doing for them now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, PointsBet started in Australia actually, and has just really rapidly grown, especially recently. So, um, you know, there's a big, they, they were kind of covering it on their own, their product marketing side. They had other people kind of everyone having their hands in it, but it's expanded so rapidly that they decided to create their own, their own department of product marketing. Um, so I kind of touch a lot of different departments in my role. Um, one of them being the product team. So obviously they're the ones that are actually creating the features, actually coming up with the updates, the, the, the technical side that I honestly do not know enough about um, <laughs> to tell you about, but I work directly with them to find out what they're coming up with, when it's being released, all the details on that end. Um, and then on the flip side of that, I also work with the marketing team. So we obviously have a branding branch, uh, CRM, growth marketing, social media. So all of those different departments, I work with them as well. Um, as kind of that middleman to tell them what products are coming out. These are the features of it. This is when it's coming out. And then also steer the messaging, make sure that the messaging is consi consistent across all of those different avenues. Um, how are we going to reach clients? Who are we pushing this out to? All of that good stuff. Okay. Not great, Heather. Um, and then I'm going to stick with you real quick for a second question. Uh, and that's you know, obviously we have a lot of, we have, you know, 66 students in the class. Um, sort of what have you done sort of to stay, stay positive in the space? And it's obviously very competitive. Uh, what maybe some tips you can share with, with folks with regard to that? And you're obviously very successful uh, for being, for being so young. So we love Thank to see you. It. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, the, to stay positive, like I mentioned before, COVID has hit the sports world hard. And, uh, it's been, it's been very tough at times, especially if you're doing anything with live events. Um, it's, it's, you got to get creative right now. You need to reach people at home. Everything is digital. Um, you know, I, I don't like using the word unprecedented because everyone uses it, but it really was unprecedented. No one, no one could have been prepared for this. And I think that's the strangest part of the whole thing is, um, you know, we came up with a media strategy when I was at University of Denver when COVID first hit um, very quickly. Um, but 
no one, this was uncharted waters, right? So, um, I mean, the way that I stay positive is, you know, it's going to end eventually. I do think that live sports will be big again. Um, I think on the bright side of all of this, a lot of us in the sports world have figured out um, how to reach people effectively at home and just how engaged people will be at home and kind of take advantage of that and, uh, you know, just spin it, you know, whether that's social media or our broadcasting, um, you know, in the world of sports betting, like I said, just really using those networks. Um, so I think that's kind of the future of it as well. And that's positive. It's a positive future. I want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As an original sneaker marketplace, eBay is a place to go to grab the pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers of $100 or more, making it free to sell your latest collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. Oh, thanks, Heather. And then, Dan, I'm going to come to you with two questions. So um, we were talking a little bit earlier uh, before we got on here, and I'm fascinated about some of the work that you're doing, uh, you know, in your in your practice. Can you share some of that? Like maybe um, some of the clients that you're not obviously you don't just you can't disclose, but some of the clients you're kind of working with and some of the projects you're working on. And then the follow up question to that is maybe what's the biggest challenge to uh, getting uh, betting legalized in California? <laughs> Uh, well, I'll work backwards from there. Uh, the California Constitution has a prohibition against uh, casinos of the type currently operating in New Jersey and, 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 uh, and, and Nevada. And that language has been uh, misinterpreted by or interpreted by lawmakers, by the tribes, as really encompassing sports betting. And, you know, I testified last year and that was one of the most gratifying things that I did. Uh, I testified last year on the legislative authority to legalize sports betting independent of the constitutional amendment process because uh, i mean joe probably has some very strong opinions on that but you know while casinos you know can offer sports wagering as an amenity and that's how it worked uh you know in las vegas since 1975 um sports wagering was is not in debt it's it, 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 it certainly was not part of casino gambling in atlantic city at the time the california constitution was amended so under this uh, ancient, this 1999 California Supreme Court decision, you look at the state of affairs uh, that existed in New Jersey and Nevada at the time. And I'm of the belief that the legislature has the authority to go forward, but I think they're reluctant politically uh, to go forward with that process. And the California Indian tribes have so much political influence uh, that they, they could probably get that bill defeated. So at the present time, California is on hold until a 2022 referendum should the tribes secure enough signatures to get their measure on the ballot. And at the same time, the California legislature will probably 
trying to move forward with its own constitutional amendment that would include mobile betting. So really able to participate under, you know, to the same extent as commercial operators, unless they want to go forward and get licensed. So the tribes are you know, concern that mobile wagering would cannibalize their brick and mortar operations. So the tribes are doing brick and mortar. The legislature wants to move forward uh, with a, a ballot question that would include mobile betting. So eventually betting will take place at the horse race tracks in California, or at least some of them, and at the 60 some odd tribal casinos. But it really does become an open question as to, as to whether which of the two measures or whether both will get on the ballot and which would secure more votes in 2022. I could do a whole class just on California. So I've been working on my legal opinion to bolster my testimony from earlier January. And it's an airtight case that the legislature has the authority and that the California constitution does not impede, restrict, or limit the legislature's authority to move forward with sports betting. But that's a debate for another day. Uh, you'll, you'll hear more about that someday. Uh, the kind of work that I'm doing that I find very gratifying is that I'm, I'm, I'm a sounding board. I don't know how I'm a, I'm a pro bono sounding board for state lawmakers in a number of different states. I've been approached by lawmakers. I won't identify the states for some guidance and some help in thinking about sports wagering legislation. And um, in my home state of Florida, I'm, I'm pretty actively involved in working with one of the lawmakers. All of that is a passion project. So uh, the legislative stuff, which I've been very fortunate to do, and, and it's a way to keep visibility in the space by offering my insights as to the uh, legality of a particular sports betting law and whether it, whether it complies with the state constitution and or uh, runs afoul of gaming compacts. I've, I've kind of carved out that niche. Uh, companies, startups, and, and sports teams, uh, you know, a year ago, I worked with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, I've worked with some of, some of the NFL teams. I've worked with some of the sports federations. Uh, so I have a, you know, a very interesting mix of clients, but my biggest clients are video game manufacturers and, um, and, and racetracks. So I, I've, I've really been able to work with almost every type of stakeholder within the gaming industry. And I would say it's a mix between sports wagering and just straight on, you know, gaming law. So my practice is, I guess, kind of split down, you know, the middle, I have the gaming side, and then I have the sort of the thought leadership side where I try to maybe lend my insights and, and, and try to, you know, get, get involved in the legislative process by working with lawmakers, testifying and writing. Right. No, well, thanks, Dan. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Uh, Jill, let's go back to you. And uh, why do you think the United States is so far behind uh, Europe and other places around the world when it comes to sports betting? Well, it really was the existence of, uh, of this federal law, the existence of PASPA, um, which you know, sort of grew out of, of some betting scandals that had occurred uh, in, uh, over the years. So you, know, you had the advent of the internet and, and um, uh, just there was no legalized sports betting in the U.S. as there was uh, in in some of the other countries, and and um, it's kind of weird because you know culturally, gambling had kind of become taboo, even though you know, gambling in the U.S. goes back to the founding of the country, which was in, you know in part the, the Revolutionary War was funded um, through gambling through a lottery, um, and and so gambling is kind of ebbed and flowed, I guess, over the, you know, 240 years since. 
Um, but, you know, at one point in time, you know, there, there was sort of anti-gambling sentiment, you know, came in and then you had PASPA that was uh, enacted uh, in, um, in um, 1992. And um, uh, you know, it took the, uh, the efforts uh, by the folks that Dan named earlier in New Jersey, uh, really led by Dennis Drazen and Governor Christie backing it in the courts um, that ultimately, you know, opened up the market here. And so now there's lots of activity, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, companies jumping into the market, a lot of investor enthusiasm uh, around it as well. So, you know, the period of time to catch up is, is I don't think is all that significant. It'll happen pretty quickly. Right. Now, good, good point, Joe, because it that seems to be happening, right? Uh, it seems like it started with fan, daily fantasy sports, and now it's uh, opening up to, um, to everything else, uh, sports teams getting involved and all that. So uh, Heather and Joe and um, Dan, I'm going to open up this question to, to everybody. And it has to do, there's a question in the chat box regarding um, NCAA and name, image, and likeness. Do you think that sort of sports betting will be one of these taboo areas that college athletics will never get into? Or do you think this is something that we might see? Uh, do you think students are going to be forbidden from, you know, um, you know looking at uh, sports betting sort of partnerships? And that, that's for anybody. Well, I'll take first crack at it. Now, others can, can chime in. Um, you know, for for years um, in the New Jersey sports betting case, you know, the NCAA was the um, the plaintiff uh, in in the case and actively fighting against sports betting. And you know, with this, you know, the, the view that sports betting you know, involving college athletes would be really, really bad. Um, at the same time. You know, we were getting pitched by um, colleges to do deals with them uh, for, for um, sponsorship deals around sports betting. And we actually did one a few years ago. Um, it's been in place for, I don't know, three, four, five years with UNLV, um, where, you know, on the scores table, there's the William Hill logo, uh, you know, during the games. And until professional hockey came to Las Vegas with the Golden Knights, you know, the hottest ticket in town was UNLV basketball. Um, and so, uh, you know, that it was kind of, you know, a little bit um, odd that, you know, the, the NCAA is a, as an organization was opposed to sports betting, but we had this deal with UNLV. And then I think we did one with uh, uh, University of Nevada, Reno. Um, and then more recently, you know, points bet uh, did a deal uh, with, I think it was Colorado or something, but Heather can talk to that. So, you know, um, you know, there's there's principle and then there's you know sort of practicality and um you know clearly the nevada schools you know we're in a state that has embraced gambling i mean you know gambling's a big part of the economy in these states and so you know they were they were um perfectly okay with the idea of doing um, um sponsorship deals with um, with gambling companies oh thanks joe uh, Heather or Dan, any, any other comments on that, uh, that particular topic? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, being at a university pretty recently and seeing the partnership with CU, I mean, I do think it, it definitely has to do partially with legalization in each state. So, you know, soon after it was legalized in Colorado, they, you know, points bet and CU did partner up, um, to answer the, the name, image and likeness part of it. I mean, it kind of relates back to the compliance piece that I was talking about earlier. 
Um, I'm by no means a compliance expert, so I won't act like I am. I don't have a law degree, so I I won't um, go too much in depth with that. But I have talked to some of my friends that do work in compliance. And as far as I can tell, there aren't any um, hard restrictions against taboo companies, sports betting. It's the same with alcohol, uh, cigarettes, you know, whatever it may be. Those are all taboo. Um, in regards to sponsorships and and, and NIL partnerships. So uh, that line, as far as I can see, doesn't exist. There is nothing that says they can't do it. It's it's more up to the specific university on their, um, you know, how they look at it. So if they don't approve of partnering with those sponsors, then they they won't. Um, When name, image, and likeness, which is still, you know, being hashed out in the NCAA and I'm not sure when uh, that will actually be finished and and um, finalized but when I was still working at University of Denver I kind of learned a little bit about it and once that is hashed out um, it's going to it's really going to be the university and that specific student athlete sitting down talking about their partnerships and kind of having a mutual agreement Um, that's how I see it right now. That could totally change with how they actually come with the details with the NCAA. I'm not really sure what that's going to look like, but as of right now, that's, that's as much as I know about it. Oh, thanks Heather. What about you, Dan, anything to add to that? Well, I mean, if you look at it, just follow the money, big 10 conference, um, they generate close to a billion dollars in revenue for their member schools. Each school, I think their cut is in excess of $50 million. They're going to, they're certainly, certainly going to want it, you know, tapped in that revenue stream uh, to fund, you know, the programs at the schools, hire coaches, build stadiums. The money train has to keep rolling and sports betting is going to be part of that. Uh, once the NCAA can, you know, get around that. The NCAA right now is putting out, trying to put out so many fires uh, they are waged in a state-by-state battle over name, image, and likeness, pro- prospect of a congressional bill, uh, some court battles uh, that, that are on the way over um, you know, amateurism. Um, they're, they're under siege from a lot of different directions. And eventually, I think sports wagering and sports betting uh, you know, policies will uh, evolve, as did the NBAs and Major League Baseball and, the, and, and all the other leagues. Because there's just too much money in play, and the, the school presidents, the conferences are going to want a piece of that. And uh, I, I think it's an inevitability. And the Colorado deal is just sort of the, you know, the beginning of what will likely be, uh, you know, it's the first shoe to first of many shoes to drop going forward. Not good point, Dan. Um, so Joe, I'm going to go back to you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the future of sort of entertainment media and sports, and specifically with uh, sort of sports betting. What are, what are some of the, some not projections, but maybe some things you might see on the horizon in this industry? Well, I think you'll continue to see the, the integration of sports betting into, into the media. Um, I, I, I do have a concern that, it, get, that, it, that it gets, if it gets too uh, in, integrated and too close, it'll lead to um, you know, neg- negative um, backlash and, and negative regulation as well. So I think you know, there's this sort of fine line um, to straddle uh, where you don't want it to be, you know, too over the top and overt. Um, but I think you'll continue to see these types of, of integrations because, you know, the, the, the media companies have, 
have eyeballs, right? They have a customer base and, um, uh, and, and certainly on digital platforms as well. Um, you know, that can be very valuable. Uh, you know, if you go on to, you know, like CBS um, Sports Online uh, and you're reading about sports, you know, you'll see a William Hill logo there and you'll have a chance to, you know, to click through to, uh, to William Hill. Uh, or you'll see the William Hill odds on ESPN and that sort of thing. And, and uh, um, uh, points bet um, had uh, had something up during a game I was watching uh, recently. I think it was a hockey game uh, on NBC. Um, and so you know you're see, you're starting to see it now. Um, uh, and and you know it, it's a way for for betting companies to get you know people familiar with the brands and with their products. Um, but I, I do have a concern if it gets, um, you know, too over the top or too integrated or to the point where uh, people get turned off by it. Right. Well, thanks, Joe. And then Heather, uh, question, same question to you. What do you, what do you sort of see as the future of entertainment, media and sports and, and specifically in the sports betting space? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll echo everything that Joe said, uh, you know, it's all about the broadcast right now. And like I said earlier, COVID has really, really showed us what the possibilities of betting from home look like, um, and really integrating that more, you know, sitting on your couch and maybe being able to talk into your remote and, and place a bet who knows where it's going to go. But, um, you know, the possibilities are endless. I will say, the future of the sports industry, although may um, be a little scary right now, um, I do see it bouncing back. And I will say, I think there's a new appreciation for everyone who works in social media, um, you know, communications, <clears throat> creative, video production, all of those people. If anyone's working in those, I think there's a new appreciation for all those people as well. And it's just going to continue. Those spaces are just going to keep continuing to grow. Oh, thanks, Heather. Uh, and then Dan, same question to you. What do you sort of see as the future of entertainment, media, sports, and in, in, in the sports betting space? Well, I'm kind of fascinated by some of the recent trends that I've seen in some of the state legislation. There's further integration of uh, of, of the sports industry into gambling, some of the recent bills. Uh, I, th I think Joe may have started this with the Capital One Arena. Uh, we're now beginning to see um, in-stadium sports books and mobile sports betting rights for sports teams uh, become the norm in state legislation where it's permissible rather than the exception. And the District of Columbia was the first uh, jurisdiction to adopt uh, a betting law that included sports arenas largely because there weren't any casinos or racetracks. So you had to have someplace to have them and the sports arenas made the most sense. And the Capital One Arena, which is a partnership between uh, Monumental Sports and William Hill, really demonstrate um, the power and the appeal of the sort of the social experience around consuming sports in a, in a social setting. And once we get back, once we get past, uh, you know, the, the current environment we're in with the pandemic, I think the um, importance of these kind of social interactions are, are going to become so, so much more important. So the the experimentation or the experiment in D.C. I think acted as a, serves as a precedent that now you're seeing bills in, in in Illinois or law in Illinois, but bills in Maryland, Arizona, Kansas, Kentucky, Virginia that have sort of emulated you know parts of the D.C. to include 
professional sports venues actually license holders in, in some situations. And I'm also um, intrigued by the growing, I guess, participation of tribes, Indian tribes in, in sports wagering. And eventually I think the law will evolve to allow the you know, Indian tribes to participate in off-reservation mobile gaming. Because right now uh, the Fed, there's a federal law known as the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which uh, really only covers gaming on Indian lands. So it's kind of tricky to be able to um, bring the tribes into the mobile environment unless they want to go outside of IGRA and get licensed directly by states and taxed directly by states, which they're reluctant you know, largely to do. Uh, so I'm fascinated by the you know, emergence of the, team, of the sports franchises, Indian tribes, and, and now even bars and restaurants are, are clamoring for participation in this industry. I think in Montana and the District of Columbia, the law already allows bars and restaurants to participate. And their, their lobbyists are going from state to state saying, well, if you're going to open it up, go beyond casinos and racetracks. Well, the hospitality industry has been absolutely devastated by COVID-19. And while some of the public gaming stocks like you know, Flutter and DraftKings have been rising during the pandemic, look at how the, the, the restaurants, the bars, the, the land-based casinos have been suffering uh, you know, during COVID-19 and have had to lay off employees and their businesses have declined markedly. So I think sports betting can be, in, in, you know, depending on the jurisdiction and whether it's workable constitutionally, I think there may be a place for bars and restaurants and hospitality establishments within the sports betting ecosystem. Oh, thanks, Dan. Yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, it's funny, we actually worked on a project a while back with regard to 50-50 raffles and, uh, and it's funny because Arizona has a law where you can actually bet, sort of place these 50-50 bets uh, or, or competing in it uh, from home. So I think the, the model is kind of there. It's just a matter of, um, you know, whether it's implemented more broadly. But that's fascinating. I mean, but, you know, despite the, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot about the, the sites and the venues, but really the future of all this is mobile. Uh, I mean, in the short snapshot of time that New Jersey sports wagering has been operational, I, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I think the mobile component compared to in-person is like over 90%. And mobile had almost a, a four or five month uh, lag time in starting. Brick and mortar, uh, you know, started in 18 and then mobile came on board, I think in September of 18. And, and the business model is now geared to you know, mobile, the, the number of skins and mobile brands that each, you know, each license holder can have. I think so it's increasingly skewing towards a mobile product. And, 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 co and the pandemic has only you know, sort of accentuated uh, you know, you know, you know, that, that. Yeah, no, I agree, Dan. Um, all right, so last question, Joe, Heather, and Dan. Um, so obviously sports betting is kind of an it's emerging industry, particularly within the job space. What advice, maybe starting with you, Joe, and then, um, and then you, Heather, and then let's close with you, Dan. Um, what are some sort of places that folks can be looking for for jobs and sort of uh, maybe some advice you might have for folks breaking into the sports industry? Well, look, I think people should follow their passion. Um, you know, be prepared to work hard. You know, uh, you know the success doesn't, you know, typically come, you know, overnight or fast. And, you know, you got to uh, put in time and learn a business and, and um, work hard at it. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it takes time. Uh, if you've got a, a, 
you know, particularly good idea that you don't think is, um, uh, is being done by anybody in the industry, you know, try to do something entrepreneurial, right? Start a company. I think there's tremendous room for innovation uh, in, in this, in this uh, area. Um, and so I think that's, you know, um, it's a great time to, especially when you're young and you don't have as many um, obligations, you know, doing something entrepreneurial is, is just a great experience, great time to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just look, you know, work hard at it, persevere. Um, you know, when you get knocked down, get back up again and keep going and, 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 you know, just don't, uh, don't give in, don't give up and, and fight through the, um, the obstacles that you have. Um, and, and then, um, you know, if if you keep, you know, keep pushing at it, you know, you got a good chance to, uh, to be successful. And, and then I also think a big part of it is working with people and, um, and treating people right. You know, I got a bumper sticker on my car that says, be kind. And, uh, and I always tell, um, I always tell our, you know, the folks here, you know, when something, you know, somebody does something, I said, look, none of us want to be judged by our worst day, right? No one should ever be judged by their worst day. We all have things we, you know, like to have back. And so I think, um, you know, being, uh, being empathetic in, in your dealings with people uh, will ultimately make you more successful. Oh, thanks, Joe. All right, Heather. Sure. Um, yeah, and this kind of relates back to your question earlier about staying positive a little bit. But, you know, I was obviously in all of your shoes um, in grad school, and um, it can be nerve wracking. It can be a little scary because, um, you know, I remember hearing from amazing speakers almost every day, and usually they all said the same thing of, you know, it's very competitive and then you're going to have to work very hard, which are very accurate things. Um, and you're going to have to work nights, weekends, holidays, long hours, and, uh, you're going to be tired. And that's something that you accept going into sports. That's something I accepted when I was in grad school. And I'm assuming all of you sitting there watching this right now, you've kind of accepted that as well. And, um, and it's okay because you love it and you're going to be doing something you love. Um, My best piece of advice, um, just to go along with that, is when you are working that hard and it is that competitive, just remember to take time for yourself. Um, I will say, you know, burnout can be real and I've gone through it myself, but you do need to take some time away, even though you're doing something you love and you'll you'll do it seven days a week, all day, all night. Um, You know, take that time, be with your family, be by yourself, whatever you need to do. Um, because essentially, I mean, it's going to make you better at your job. You're going to be excited to go back to work. You're going to be more motivated. You're going to do better in the long run. Um, so that's my best piece of advice, you know, going into it. Thanks, Heather. You've been great. All right, Dan, let's close with you, my friend. Uh, same advice or sort of words of words of wisdom and maybe some, some jobs or sort of industry stuff that folks can do to, uh, to break in? I would say uh, that apart from the entrepreneurial aspect, um, if you're looking to uh, at least begin your career uh, working with one of, these, one of these companies working in the industry, how do you make yourself more attractive uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to these companies that are going on a hiring spree? There are a lot, there are an abundance of new positions available in the industry that never existed before. And don't just look at the public, at the private sector. I think some of the, be- the best ways to break into the industry 
are through the government agency. They're not uh, very high paying jobs. Uh, there may be more internships available, you know, in, in that setting, uh, but they give you experience, hands-on experience in the industry right away, dealing with licensing, compliance, the regulatory aspects of it. And every, every state or almost every state has a, you know, either a state lottery or a state gaming commission or a horse racing commission. And that's sort of like the hidden job market that I advise uh, a lot of a lot of students to look towards because um, they're growing as well to keep pace with the growth of gaming within their states. And you know, New Hampshire now oversees sports wagering, and they're um, they created a new sports wagering division, nine new jobs, internships, and I've seen some students go right from you know college programs in sports law, sports management. Uh, to going to work for the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission. I think it's called the Iowa Racing Commission. So uh, getting the hands-on experience in state agencies, whether through internships or uh, entry-level jobs, could be a good, uh, you know, I guess, path to working in the private sector in terms of making yourself more attractive to prospective employers. Because let's face it, there's a dearth of, of, of skill. There's not enough skill in the regulatory compliance and licensing space to meet the growing demand created by all these companies entering the entering the industry uh, on a state by state basis. So that's one level. Another way of showing commitment, and, and I'm not trying to promote my own uh, program, but there are a number of educational programs run through law schools, uh, University of New Hampshire, UNLV. I think Ohio University has a sports management program. Each of those schools, and there may be others I'm missing, have uh, certificate programs and postgraduate programs devoted towards sports wagering, law, regulation, and compliance. And um, the connections you make within those programs and the, the credibility that your, your, your resume would have by, by participating in one of those programs, just by showing commitment and interest in, in, in the industry, I think could give you a good leg up on the competition. So uh, I think further your education in the space, learn as much as you can about it. Uh, and, and I think there's an opportunity to really self-educate here because uh, every state is now you know, beginning to introduce legislation and, and lawmaking and regulation around it. And if you could master that and understand that, um, you'll make yourself uh, infinitely more attractive uh, to employers. So, you know, I'm kind of going around the horn here, but it's essentially uh, uh, state agencies might be a good hidden job market. Uh, post postgraduate programs devoted to sports betting and, and just be persistent uh, because there are so many companies out there that are looking to hire. I mean, I landed a judicial clerkship uh, back in 1991. I applied to over 500 federal judges. Every single federal district court judge in the country received my resume. I got two offers for an interview, one from the District of Delaware from Judge Caleb Bright, Joe may know who he is, a very famed federal district court judge in Delaware, and I got hired by a judge in New York. My batting average was two for 500, uh, which is so far below the Mendoza line that you can't even see the Mendoza line. So you really need to be persistent here and cast a very wide net. But I think some one of one of the, one of the tricks, one of the one of the easy low hanging fruit, I think, would be you know state agencies looking to that for you know potential. Uh, entry-level job opportunity, which could then, you know, further brand you and give you the, you know, experience needed to take the step up in the private sector. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Dan. Joe, Heather, uh, Dan, you guys have been fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for joining us um, and really just appreciate your time and your advice. I mean, this has been really great and uh, look forward to staying in touch. So, so thank you again so much.
Well, thank you again for listening in. That was episode eight of season three. We'll look forward to being back with you next week for episode nine. And um, should always be a great show for you. That'll be uh, the first of March. And um, just uh, sort of plugging along here. But again, th- always appreciate listening in. This is Jeremy Evans, your host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.